Hi, I'm Anastasia Fisher, president of U.S. Harbors, and I'm here today with Paul Anderson from the Maine Center of Coastal Fisheries. And we're going to talk everything fisheries, management, and all the complex issues that are going on around that today. So welcome, Paul. How are you? I'm doing fine, Anastasia. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit, first of all, about your, um, the, or, your organization. It's really a fascinating work you do. Yeah, the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries is based in Stonington, Maine, which is an important harbor in Maine with a long history. Our organization is actually, I think we're around 17 years old right now. The mission is quite simply to help sustain commercial fishing and the communities that depend on it in uh, eastern Maine and beyond. So our footprint is mostly Penobscot Bay uh, to Canada. Um, but we pay attention to a lot of the issues that affect commercial fishing. And of course, as we'll talk about later uh, in this conversation, many of them are Gulf of Maine wide and even beyond. And so we're, we're more of a science organization than a fishing association. Um, we do have board members that are fishermen and uh, we connect with fishermen as much as we can. But our program staff are trained in science. We have a chief scientist, Dr. Carla Gunther, who is extremely talented and skilled with interdisciplinary science that really helps us to think in a, in a holistic way about what we're doing. And uh, perhaps I can tell you more about some of the programs as we talk through this morning, but they fit loosely into three uh, collaborative spaces, one on collaborative research with fishermen, one on collaborative management, trying to figure out how we can manage fisheries together with fishermen and government working together, and then finally collaborative education. That's great. So one of the things I noticed about your organization that really makes it unique is this word collaborative. Can, so can you speak a little bit more about what that means to the people involved? Yeah, and it's a big word and it can mean so many things along the continuum, as you know. But for example, collaborative management, there's um, there's a couple of cases in Maine that are, that are legislated opportunities to co-manage a species. And it's in, it's in regulation. One is the alwai fishery and one is the soft shell clam fishery, where there's already been work to say, yes, towns should have a voice in how you catch these fish, how you count them, how you evaluate them. So that's kind of classic collaborative management, but there's a, there's a continuum of um, other ways for fishermen and community leaders to collaborate in the governance. And so there's a softer example might be the lobster zone councils here in Maine, where there are seven zone councils and there's, there's, there's an allowance or an intention that those lobstermen can have some say in how their own management and their own regulations play out. That feels a little softer to us. And so we're, we're enthusiasts of getting fishermen to that table as much as we can. And, you know, there's a scallop advisory council, right? And then there's a urchin council. So each species kind of has this place where we can do collaboration, but the, there's a whole different um, set of expectations and experiences around the success of that kind of collaboration. We're keen on really trying to help all the players come to that table and understand how to share the responsibility and stay up on, on the information, science information as much as possible. So that at the end of the day, that responsibility isn't just government. Uh, government wants help. They want good help. And so, you know, we're, we're all about trying to facilitate that sort of um, dimension. And then if you superimpose that same kind of dynamic in the collaborative research as well as a collaborative education, you can imagine that we're all about empowering local 
involvement, local knowledge into each of those places. So collaboration is a tricky space. And um, what are some of the kind of challenges that you found and what are some of the kind of solutions that you found work well in that space? Well, what's critical to actually be successful in the end is trust. And, and it takes time to cultivate trust, to help people get to know one another and to end up trusting one another and learning from one another and casting aside maybe some assumptions that had uh, festered and might be uh, inaccurate. And so I think the, the value of our center and what, when what made me want to go try working there from the University of Maine was this this ability to embed within the communities and you know live in the communities that you serve and really get to know people as humans and uh, and get them to know one another and learn where their differences are and where their commonalities are and um, and through that you can you can you can trust one another and still disagree you can and it, it can happen in humanity it's hard to know right now if you look at our world's politics but when it happens it's it's beautiful. Um, and in the end, you can find those common ground areas where people want conservation. doesn't matter how many fish you want to catch. You want to be able to make sure your, your kids and grandkids can fish. People also want prosperity and they want to have, they want to be successful in their business. And so can we balance conservation and prosperity? Absolutely. But there's a whole continuum there of assumptions and, and, um, expectations from a human perspective. And so, <clears throat> you know, our work of, of, of cultivating that and facilitating that takes time and patience and consistency. And uh, we don't know everybody that's fishing in Eastern Maine, but the ones that we do get to know and can help bring to the table, I think they appreciate this um, value, the set of principles and values that we use in terms of listening and learning from one another. It, it's leading me to ask you about one of the projects that I was really interested in and one of the things we've talked about, which is this new framework, sort of a more ecological, holistic framework for evaluating fisheries management. And I know you've been doing some projects around. So could you talk about what that is and what? how does that work? Well, it's still emerging. I, I have to admit that it's hard to know how it works because we're still learning as we go. But but we had an opportunity right as I came on board in 2017, Robin had convinced the federal government, NOAA, and the state government, Department of Marine Resources, to sign a three-way agreement with us called a CRADA. It's a Cooperative Research and Development Agreement that really codifies an agreement that would explore how to create a science-based um, research framework for ecosystem-based management in Eastern Maine. And that's a lot of words, but what it means is, can we take this place in Eastern Maine and treat it kind of as a pilot area and really push ourselves from the science community to the management community, to the fishermen and other leaders to drill into the ecosystem-based approach? Um, this is, ecosystem-based approach has been talked about for decades. It's not new. It's a, it's a pretty uh, basically understood ecological principle of don't just count a species of fish, understand how that species of fish relates with other species of fish, who's eating who, and what are the ecological environmental features around those species that we need to understand. And, uh, you know, any scientist wants to 
do that kind of work, but but invariably scientific careers are built around a single species or built around a single compartment of the ecosystem. Um, how can we foster a more interdisciplinary um, knowledge base by bringing local information and traditional science information together and try to blur those lines between disciplines? And uh, can we come up with new approaches to fishing. Some of it might be regulations. Some of it might just be best practices. Can we better understand seasons? Can we better understand habitat and critical habitat, nursery grounds? Can we, um, can we think about ways where some of the assumptions that have played out as current uh, fisheries regulations were developed where maybe they're not quite right? Is that scallop season the right season for catching scallops? Don't know. How can, how can we um, queue up a way to ask those kinds of questions in a more contemporary, interdisciplinary, holistic way? That's what we're, we're trying to foster in Eastern Maine. We ended up calling the, um, the initiative, it's called the Eastern Maine Coastal Current Collaborative. Our friends from NOAA love their acronyms, so they needed an acronym. And so it's EMCCC or EM3C, however you want to do that. But uh, nonetheless, what, what we're up to now, our role in this is to try to create the network, is to pull people into this conversation from both the community and fishermen to the scientists and managers. And um, it, we were, we've been making some pretty good progress. Again, it's going to take time to cultivate that network. Uh, the COVID pandemic that we're still in right now interrupted us in 2020. But we still have, I think, some progress going on, and um, uh, we hope that it, it's not just an event. We hope that what we cultivate is a new way of thinking and a new way of behaving, and and again, collaboration is all through it in terms of science management and education. So it all fits, we think, into this um, what is called a social ecologic system approach to um, to the region. And, uh, and it's defined by the coastal current, so that's our place. Um, your listeners may or may not know that the, the oceanography of the Gulf of Maine has a gyre of, of current that comes down from the Bay of Fundy in a southwesterly direction, and it kicks off and kind of gyres at, at Penobscot Bay. That segment of eastern Maine that is Hancock and Washington counties really has a different oceanographic uh, complexity to it that the rest of the coast of Maine does not have. So that gives us kind of a place to study these things and ask more nuanced questions. I got very interested in the fact that you guys were asking questions about stuff that wasn't even seemingly about fish, about communities and the future and bringing up questions about future livelihoods, changes in demographics. And can you speak a little bit about what what's going on in that space? Yeah, well, that that's a great question. It's been so fun. And before COVID, we had two of these gatherings that were so neat because it depended on who shows up, right? We asked three questions and we use what's called a, a world cafe style of engaging this group. And let's say we had about 20 people at an event. We break them into three groups around tables and they're going to each take 20 to 30 minutes on each question. And one of them, one of the questions is, what are you seeing around you for change? Could be natural system change out your, out your wheelhouse or your kitchen window. Could be other kind of demographic change. Uh, and why do you think that is? Um, what do you see uh, happening in policy around you that affects you and your work, or either your day life or your work life? And the third question is, what do you, what do you think your community values most looking forward? 
So none of those are really hard science, natural science questions. And what we're trying to get to here is, is an engagement process that lets people speak from the heart and speak from their own language and their own observations, their own experiences, and, and come into that conversation as a first step, really speaking about who they are and, and what they represent in their families and their communities. Because we think that building that kind of rapport with one another is, is really an important step and creating a functional network that can be durable over time, over the long haul, get to know one another. So the first meeting we had in Millbridge, it was remarkable. We had a whole bunch of blueberry grower interests from up the watershed. And they didn't know much about commercial fishing. They knew that there's water extraction questions about irrigation, and there are things to look out for and to look up uh, to, to avoid in terms of ecosystem health. But it just created this fascinating conversation. And that night, we got talking a lot about schools fire departments, you know, community resilience from a perspective of just simply having a rural community that can thrive and prosper, that um, suffers all these natural resource challenges, whether it's fishing or blueberries or forestry, but they still suffer this um, this other social uh, fragility that um, tends to change with demographics. And, uh, and I bet if we went back to Millbridge now after this last year with a new influx of, of uh, you know, new residents or whatever the right way to call them is, um, th those community perceptions uh, will continue to uh, flex and change. So, so that we think that that's the first part. Rather than having scientists come into town and say, you got a problem, this is your problem, I want to help you fix it. We wanted the communities to get together and, and be able to reflect on what they see as their problems, what they see as their challenges and opportunities, and then invite the scientists into that conversation as opposed to having a typical expert come to town who invites people into his or her conversation. We wanted to reverse that. It's very unique. And uh, I, I, I'm hoping that you have really great success because, of course, the fishermen have daily encounters with that whole world. It's a it is a full experience for them, whether it's, you know, what the weather is doing and they've been monitoring the weather because they've been in it every day, you know, some of them 365 days a year. And uh, so they have a much uh, deeper sense of what's happening in their hyperlocal area, both on the, the bottom of a seafloor where they fish and uh, of course in their local communities. But can you give me a sense of the different lenses that a fisherman would have, for example, on the area that a fisherman has that he fishes versus a scientist? Yeah, I have a great example. This was exciting. We we started this off with a conference in Machias, this whole initiative, before we did these local meetings, just to begin to say, this is what ecosystem-based fisheries management might be. And it was a two-day conference in Machias. And one of our speakers was a fisherman out of Millbridge, great guy who was on my board of directors at the time, really smart, went to Maine Maritime Academy, but really decided that, you know what, I want to fish. My dad and my uncle fished. He had the best, he had the most sophisticated gear on board for seeing the bottom and mapping the bottom and had collected all of this information from both his father who had passed away, but he had all this data that had incredible granularity to it that 
that he knew and he had in his wheelhouse and helped to him to make decisions about when to move traps and when how to understand what he's seeing in the water column. He would see squid at one point in the year and he'd say, okay, that means this. I take two weeks off. Once they show up, the lobsters disappear or whatever. I'm not probably getting his stories right, but he was so in tune with what was going on around him and could embed that into this new knowledge about water temperatures at depth and the the the, uh, the mapping that his his um his instrumentation was telling him and what was really neat was he shared that in this conference he put all that right up on the wall and there was a lot of enthusiasm in the room but from both scientists and just curiosity seekers as well as fishermen going wow he's sharing his secrets he's he's sharing a level of knowledge that we can't afford to have that level of observing and monitoring if we just relied on government sensors and ships and tow surveys. We just will never have that kind of uh, depth of data. And, and so it really opens up some doors to thinking about, wow, how could we tap into all mariners, whatever they were willing to share? Could we really end up with this huge um, database and better knowledge about what is going on in the ecosystem, both, you know, hard and soft structures, but maybe even other things that, that, you know, nowadays with big data, there's got to be ways to manage that information in real time. And it could really help us uh, if we, if we were able to achieve local scale management and making decisions that were a little more real time that didn't just rely on the legislature, um, that kind of information might be part of that future. Now the hard questions, we know what everybody's doing because we've been, some of these fishermen have been fishing for generation after generation after generation, hundreds of years probably. Like, yeah, definitely down east, right? And um, and the scientists have been working away and all of us are, are now having to deal with external issues that uh, have been brewing forever, but we're now facing these major complexities that come into the equation. Uh, we were talking earlier, you mentioned offshore wind, expansion of the aquaculture, the right whale issue, and the 30 by 30 initiative. And I was wondering how you and your organization even begin to think about bringing these things into the conversation and, and adding that to this sort of ecologic, holistic model that you're trying to put together. Well, it, as you can well understand, it's it's difficult to do that with all those pieces. Each one of those issues that you named is enough to overwhelm a fisherman or overwhelm a conversation. Even the manager is struggling with this. Um, but having all four of those things simultaneously coming around at, at one time, some of which mean certain regulatory changes in terms of the whale issue. And, and there's going to be changes to how lobstermen can fish when and where, and you know, how they use their gear, just getting them to think about that and, um, and understand that change is, is happening, but try to keep the door open for them to be involved in, in some innovation and some creative ways for them to uh, comply, but also, um, you know, intelligent ways to push back and see where there is uh, negotiation possible, where there's um, there's a way to uh, you know to meet the needs of the whale conservation interests, but also to keep fishing. And uh, and but 
And so that conversation along with those other issues could is all encompassing. And right now we've, we've recognized that the whole thing I just talked about with ecosystem-based management, each one of those issues fits into the ecosystem-based management conversation, changes it a little bit. It makes it a little, in some cases, a very pragmatic conversation about, well, you know, how, how can I fish in this area where whales might be and what kind of gear do I have to use? And that's kind of a social side of the conversation. Um, offshore wind energy is going to displace um, some fishermen if it plays out the way it does. Um, but getting fishermen to think about uh, what that could mean for them and, and be able to articulate their concerns without sounding like they're just a mob saying no um, feels like something that we can help to um, inform. So it, what it's done to us now, COVID interrupted the the process that I described a moment ago. And and I dare say if we wandered, if we had permission to go back into some of these working harbors like Cutler or somewhere and, and wanted to host a conversation, it wouldn't be about just ecosystem-based fisheries management. It would have to be about lobster regulations and talking to them in the context of their wellness, their prosperity and conservation about how they're going to survive this. You know, what can they do to innovate? And this is emerging for us. We, we had meetings just a, a couple of weeks ago with my own fishermen board members, um, just speculating on, well, how can we play around with the ropeless technology and, and really test it under the extreme conditions we have in Eastern Maine, either to prove that it doesn't work, we've got to come up with something different or to say, well, it could work, but we suggest these modifications and, uh, and get fishermen into that space so that they're part of the solution and part of the, the ultimate management. Essentially that would be co-management, right? So it's, I don't know. I don't have any real brilliant answers on how we're going to proceed in the coming months. But uh, you know, we, my, I, the staff, and my board are trying to figure out how do we keep doing the important stuff we're doing, but allow ourselves to be as much of a service to the communities and the fishermen as possible, so that we can sustain uh, these fishing communities. So. These communities and the work that you're doing is all about being hyper-local, which is the same. U.S. Harbors is a hyper-local service, too. So we really understand the fact that there are incredible differences from one location to another and different perspectives on things. And um, I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about the sort of general conditions and perspectives in the area that you're working down east. Yeah, well, this is good timing. Yesterday I had a conversation with staff because we were looking at some of the aquaculture that's emerging in Eastern Maine. So this is a good example. Uh, in our own backyard on Stonington, um, one of my board members, in fact, Marsden Brewer is his name. He's a great innovator. He's been a fisherman for 40 or more years, all kinds of different species. He's now growing scallops. He's got a, an operation, small scale, scallop operation because he paid attention and saw some of what was going on over the last 10 years and decided he would try that. 
And, uh, and so the aquaculture conversation becomes, okay, well, so when is aquaculture okay? When is it a good opportunity for a fisherman and his family, in this case, Marston and his son, have kind of a small mom-and-pop scale operation? I don't think it pays all their bills, but it supplements his income, and it, it's an interesting way to fit. And he's got it mapped out so that you can actually fish lobster traps between where he's got his facility. Um and, and so there's a growing interest uh, in eastern Maine, growing on some of the successes and maybe lessons learned in central Maine with shellfish, oysters, and seaweed, uh, to begin doing more of this kind of aquaculture in eastern Maine. And I think there are some communities that are going to embrace it. If they learn about it and figure it out, either community leaders or fishermen themselves are going to say, yeah, I want to try some of that kelp aquaculture. I want to try some of those oysters. And, and there's, there are ways to either use the technology or, or figure out where it could be done at a scale that fits without getting in the way. And uh, we kind of speculated that some towns will embrace this more so than others, right? And uh, I know, for example, um, in Jonesport, there's an interest in onshore recirculating aquaculture that would be tanks on, on shore doing, um, I think it's yellowtail fish, cereola. I know some local fishermen that are, and community leaders that are very enthused about that. They think that that can come in. It's different from pens in the ocean, which they're not so keen on. Um, and they would embrace that because it's familiar. It's seafood. You can grow these things, cut them, process them, move them, and it's kind of familiar to the infrastructure of a fishing community. So they're they're pretty, I think, open to hearing how that might play out and what it means for them. There are other parts of Maine, as you know, where similar operations are being proposed, where there's there's a huge, you know, community stink going on to um, keep those kinds of things from coming in. Um, and somewhere along this way, we wish, I mean, this is what my staff were talking about yesterday, we wish there was a way to devolve the governance and the authority over those decisions as local as possible without giving up the public trust um, responsibility of government. And uh, so can a community or a watershed come together and say, okay, we're going to have an aquaculture park and it's going to be over there. It's out of the way of the regatta. It's out of the way of the mooring fields. It's out of the way of the marina slips. And it seems to work in the ecosystem. And, uh, and we'll come up with a process for subletting, you know, small scale farms that don't have an ecological footprint, but provide part of the seafood cornucopia for that town or set of communities. That's kind of neat to think about. It may be completely impractical. I don't know from a government point of view. I know that there are those that want aquaculture to grow rapidly and rather large who would probably find that to be unwieldy. But, I, you know, that's a long way of saying each town, I think, in eastern Maine is going to embrace these kinds of opportunities and changes differently based on their own values, which is why we wanted to start that ecosystem conversation with values. Mm-hmm. So 30 by 30, is that a conversation that uh, people in Eastern Maine are having that you guys are uh, discussing around the tables? Well, as you know, it's brand new. It's not, the idea is not new, but the executive order only came out in late January. Strangely enough, even though I'd like to think I keep up on current events and news, it was a fisherman on my board who brought it to my attention. 
God bless him. He's a really smart guy. He pays attention. He's like, what's this executive order? And I was like, I don't know. Let me go do some homework. And I did. Um, so it's brand new. I don't think very many people in the country really understand what that executive order wants to achieve. Um, and it was interesting. I brought it up at our board meeting um, and I have scientists on the board, really high, high power scientists and some fishermen. And the fishermen, of course, are looking at it going, wow, are you really going to put 30% of the ocean into um, marine protected areas, marine reserves, and, and have no extraction, no, no take areas? Um, or is there some other kind of conservation that qualifies as protection, but you can still do some intensive management? And uh, strangely enough, the timing was such that one of my board members, Nancy Knowlton, who's a very brilliant world-renowned scientist has retired to Brooksville, um, she and her partner. And um, she said, you know, there's just this paper published in this international journal of all these high-powered marine ecologists saying, yes, we need marine reserves. It's the only way we're going to preserve uh, biodiversity on the planet. We've got to go in this direction. And this is a planetary conversation. This isn't just the United States. And that that caused a pregnant pause in the board meeting, as you can imagine, um, because, you know, the fishermen are going, well, wait a second, what is it? This feels like a threat to me. What What's that all about? And, and here, scientists are saying, yeah, there's credible evidence that marine reserves do work. Um, there's other science going on around whether they create refugia or do they create, um, do they concentrate effort elsewhere because you've displaced fishermen, right? And so there needs to be a full analysis of the implications and what are the trade-offs as uh, as we move in that direction. But it's a brand new conversation and it's one of those ones that it will be hard to engage fishermen in, again, because they're worried about uh, marking their gear and, and putting in weak links. And all of a sudden you're telling them that, what do you mean? I'm going to lose 30% of the Gulf of Maine maybe to territory. We already know that the, the offshore wind prospect is also taking some uh, fishing grounds off the table. And so that's why this confluence of each of these issues coming together right now just feels like um, frightening to the communities and we're we're right at the beginning of this and and trying to be up to speed on it and i would like to think we can find ways to engage fishermen so they learn share what they know and participate but there's a process you got to go through in time to get them through you know all the what's that called there's a whole cascade of reactions we all have to disaster or death, right? You have to accept it. You have to, whatever. There are different stages of that process. These guys are feeling threatened in that way, and they've got to be given the time to uh, to learn, understand, share, and then participate. Well, it's very, very immediate for them, but um, I'm wondering, they must, with the things that we're hearing about the Gulf of Maine being one of the fastest warming bodies of water, on the planet, really, I'm wondering, they must have already been feeling the effects of this and must, you must hear some of that from them. I think so. If, I mean, it's always been changing, right? I remember when I was a little boy visiting my grandparents in the Portland area, I grew up in Vermont and Casco Bay lobster was king. 
Casco Bay was where lobster was landed. It was just huge. And, you know, we, we, we were in that community. Since then, as I've gone, grown older and stayed in Maine and went through college, that shifting has happened, has moved eastward ever since. You know, and then when I was in college, it was Rockland and Penobscot Bay was the center of lobster. And now it's Stonington happens to be the biggest port. It's moving. And so all this to say that fishermen have seen change around them and they adapt to it. They're creative. They're ingenious in terms of their ability to adapt. They're very resilient. Um, So that's not new. It's not new for them to, to know that there's a new thing that has to come up or that regulation is going to be looking at them differently and things are going to change. They have to adapt. Um, But what I think is feeling overwhelming is that there's so many things happening all at once right now. And they're not quite sure where to put their energy, where to, where to focus. So let me ask you, what, what does the future look like to you? Even though we've, we've delved into some kind of dark, scary crevices here that but frankly everyone is is facing these it's just the it's almost like the fishermen are the canaries in the coal mine for uh, some of this they're on the front lines and the rest of us aren't seeing it as immediately but i'm wondering you know what what are the next steps that might be taken and what are what do you imagine can happen um, from these dialogues and that's a huge question so Answer it in whatever way you feel comfortable. Yeah, I, I guess the only way to for me to answer it is to remain hopeful, and that um, both society and the ecosystem have elements of resilience to them, and understanding that resilience, both the vulnerabilities and and how recovery and mod- and changes happen, and then being able to um, live in that changed world. Is kind of, I mean, that, that's sort of the short term, and I'm talking decades, right? The longer term, if I think if we do this right, and I think the Gulf of Maine is in a position to try to do it right, do it differently from some other places on the planet that might have gone too far in the in the in the wrong direction to truly recover. We could figure out how to co-locate. Um, aquaculture and commercial capture fisheries and do it uh, really well in an ecologic sense and take advantage of our branding and our access to markets and our, our history and, and uh, talent with respect to seafood processing and creating quality food. We, we could figure out how to do that and do it right and not have those two forces fighting with one another. Similarly, I think if offshore wind is one of the necessary ways to meet um, renewable energy goals, like it or not, we can figure out how to co-locate and figure out how to fish around them and and keep ecological disaster from happening. Um, I actually question whether offshore wind is the wisest way to meet the um, both climate goals as well as the renewable energy goals. I think there are other energy opportunities that we may not be fully um, evaluating right now. Um, but somehow that that electricity thing has to be solved because my my uh, kind of Pollyannish look at the future is that we can end up with an electrified fishing fleet and we can stop burning diesel and you know we could come up with batteries and, and superconductivity and other technologies where the power plants on these fishing boats and sailboats and others don't 
burn diesel and aren't contributing to climate change. And if the same thing happens with terrestrial transportation, you know, you've heard General Motors has said by 2030 or 2040, they're going to not make any more gas burning vehicles, right? So if those things really happen and we've managed to retain the natural system of the Gulf of Maine, then we have a we have a really good future out in front of us. And I, I'm hopeful that, that we can do it, but, every, but there's got to be a lot of listening and a lot of learning. And a lot of those assumptions that I talked about earlier have to be softened. And working together on things, collaboration, back to that great word. We didn't talk much about this yet, but I'm, I'm interested to know what you think the government's role in, in, down east, in these Down East Maine uh, confluence of things should be. Um, is particularly in that, you know, government comes at it from this macro, huge level and, and you're dealing with the hyper-local. How do those two things actually come together in your mind? Ideally, what would be the best relationship? Again, um, I think I'm, I made a point about, uh, I'm curious and I've been curious my entire career about how far we can bring government down to hyper-local. Right now, if you think about it, we've got municipal government, and we got county government, and we've got state and federal, right? And, and in each case, there's different sets of jurisdictions and rules. Um, I think the state of Maine is so complex that having DMR try to manage everything from Kittery and the south coast and the, the Crescent Beaches and the mid coast and then eastern Maine, all with one set of rules, just doesn't work. There's there's three different, at least three different bioregions within the state of Maine. So can we devolve that down to some other more bioregion, more hyper-local way of looking at managing the natural systems, the uh, the extraction, fishing, and even other kinds of terrestrial activities that fit for those biogeographies? And we get to a point of what's called bay management. I was on the bay management task force many years ago now when I was running the Sea Grant program. And it was exploring how could we look at these bioregions that are more bioregions rather than just political um, you know, lines. And, um, and there was some creative thinking going on at that time. At the time, the state backed away from the, the pilot study that we did in what's called Taunton Bay in Hancock County because they said there's no way we as a state government have the capacity to enforce and monitor and do the, the hand-holding that would be necessary for those five towns to have some kind of, you know, authority around that tiny little bioregion. All right. So that didn't work at that point. It was a pilot study. But there's renewed interest. In fact, there's legislation before the state legislature right now to explore what looks like bay management. It's to explore whether sets of towns could self-identify and come up with a commission, a regional commission of some sort that is in between counties and state and has maybe a different set of um, tasks in front of it uh, that would be around, well, how does this area handle the blending of aquaculture and seafood? How does tourism fit into this area? How does cruise ships fit into that picture? And just kind of look at the whole future and how to, uh, you know, presumably based on some local values and some local biogeography, bio, bio but also demographic sorts of 
issues with workforce and housing and all of those kinds of social tensions. Um, and that would be pretty neat because you, if you know Eastern Maine, you could start parsing Hancock and Washington County into, I don't know, five or six uh, watersheds um, where the communities probably have some common ground and they have some common interests and some maybe some heritage and history that would allow them to work together and they could do things and that aren't just municipal level and they're not just state level, it's something in between. Cobscook Bay is a, is a wonderful example of a little bioregion that, that should be looking at itself as an ecology. I mean, Eastport and Lubeck are very different social communities, but they're in the same bay. And, uh, and there's, it's, it's fascinating, the, the, the people that are thinking along these lines, the Native American community in Eastern Maine in particular is thinking along those lines. And it really goes back to some of, um, some of their you know, First Nation habits and heritage around how they paid attention to the natural system around them. And it wasn't based on political boundaries. It was based on watersheds. There, there's a lot of interest in thinking about that very issue. Paul, you've had some great experience in this very small area. And if you could give some advice to other people who might be interested in, in sort of starting off some of this kind of um, discussion in their local areas, what, what would you suggest? I, I think getting out and meeting people that are working in it now and living in it now is good. You know, hike the shoreline, um, meet, a, meet a fisherman. Go out on a fishing boat, see what it means to be out on the water. Um, you know, the people that are worried about aquaculture, go knock on the door. Aquaculture, I know a lot of shellfish growers and folks, and they're great people. They love to show you what they're doing and probably sell you a batch of mussels or something too. But, um, you know, really try to, I would say, get to understand this from a, from a, personal perspective before assuming that what you read in the papers and elsewhere tells the whole story because it never can. So Paul, is there anything else that you wanted to say to wrap up here? Any, any uh, last words you'd like to well, Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners. Really appreciate what you're doing to try to educate people and keep them up on the issues. And it's nice to spend time with you. Great. It's been wonderful talking to you, Paul, too. And uh, good luck with all of your projects. And uh, we'll check in with you later, I hope, to hear more about um, what's going on and see how things are evolving. Okay. Love to.